All right, all right. Welcome back to the Know Your Numbers podcast. This is Chris McCormick, and today's episode is with our friend Ryan Backey. Ryan is a fellow CPA out there in the Chicago market. He was in Big Four accounting for a short period of time before jumping off and doing his own thing. He currently owns and operates MLS Consulting, and uh, he also runs a great uh, Twitter page. And I do believe he's coming out with his podcast, Learn Like a CPA. So um, that being said, he is very knowledgeable on the tax code. He helps real estate investors uh, increase their ROI and save more in taxes. So obviously, I felt the need to sit down and pick his brain a little bit. Uh, we're in similar markets, serving similar people. And uh, this conversation was was fruitful, man. It's, uh, it's an honor to bring Ryan on the show. It's on, an honor to sit down with him and pick his brain. And I'm excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here is the Know Your Numbers podcast with Ryan Backey. All right, welcome. This is another episode of the Know Your Numbers podcast with your host, Chris McCormick. Today, a very special guest in the name of Ryan Backey. Ryan's a CPA uh, running his own shop with a couple employees prepping and planning for taxes year round. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show, man. We were catching up a little bit before the show, but give the audience a little background on who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Ryan, and I own and operate a 100% virtual CPA firm focused on real estate investors. We help people who own real estate tax plan as well as strategize around investment decisions. I started off, I have a, two bachelor's degrees, one in accounting, one in finance. I didn't find the love of real estate until I was actually working at a small CPA shop while in college. I had prepared a tax return for a married couple that made about $200,000. They were both W-2 employees. And then I prepared a tax return by a, a single guy who had 400,000 in real estate cash flow. And the guy who was single, making double the amount of money that the married couple did, he paid less in taxes than the married couple did that made half the amount of income. And I remember asking my boss at the time, who was another CPA, and he go, and I say, now, how is that possible? What's going on? And, and his simple response was, it's because he invests in real estate. Right. And ever since that moment, it was kind of like a shining light. And I've spent the last however many years figuring out exactly how to do that. And yep. what you'll learn and what everybody should take away from it is earned income is taxed the highest. So if you have to show up to work, whether that's your day job, self-employment, your own business, earned income is taxed the highest. It's passive income and portfolio income, the other two types of income that are taxed the least, if not at all. Right. And the name of the game becomes how quickly can you shift your earned income to passive income or portfolio income? Because you're going to be, uh, you're going to increase your cash flow while also lowering your effective tax rate at the same time. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And I think that's a great place to start because we do have a lot of uh, real estate investors as well as aspiring real estate investors. And one thing that I think it's talked about, but doesn't uh, get talked about enough is the tax advantage. So when you speak passive income, that confuses a lot of people. Some people think, oh, real estate's the way to go because it's all passive. And then they come to find out that it's mostly active and there's a lot of a lot of work involved. So I'd love for you to talk about some of the uh, 
the tax strategies that you look for to make it at least on paper passive income mm -hmm. and um, less taxable in the eyes of the law. You bring up a good point because a lot of people get passive income confused. They think if I make, let's say I make an ebook and I sell it for 15 bucks, that's passive income. Yeah. It's not actually, it's self-employment income. Actually, it's taxed the worst that it can be because you're going to have ordinary income tax, the same as if you were to work a job and you're going to have that additional self-employment tax. Yep. True passive income comes in the form of two things. Number one, by default, all rental real estate is passive. Yep. So whether you own single family, multifamily, condos, apartments, short-term rentals, commercial buildings, that's all passive income by default. The other, the other activity that's passive income is any, any activity in which you do not materially participate in. So for example, my friend owns a hair salon. I want to invest in her hair salon. I'm a passive investor in that business. I give her cash. I don't make any management decisions. I don't have any say in the business. She runs the business on the day to day. I don't material. I don't materially participate. So that's a passive activity to me. Yep. Those are the two forms of true passive activities. Now, why do we want passive activities? Is because number one, they're not subject to FICA tax. So FICA tax is Social Security and Medicare. If you're a W two employee, go look at your pay stub. There'll be a there'll be a line on them for Social Security, and there'll be a line on them for Medicare. You do not pay this tax when you have passive income. So immediately, any money you have coming in from a passive income source is automatically taxed eight percent, about eight percent less, because you're not subject to that FICA. Uh, furthermore, passive income can be offset by a host of exclusions, such as any sort of act, any sort of expense that you have for that property, or depreciation is the one that we like to talk about the most. But the passive activities will net each other all day long. So if I have a, let's say, for, for example, if I have um, a loss coming from my rental property that I own, so I own a duplex right now, a multifamily house, yeah. and I have income coming from, say, my friend's hair salon, those two activities, because they're both passive activities, they'll net each other. Mm -hmm. So I could essentially pay nothing in taxes on any of that income. Wow, cool. That's good, man. Yeah, no, it really is cool. And that's something that I tried to uh, articulate to the listeners is that the tax code is really kind of a puzzle in a way and that it, there are incentives for you to one, make money, but to also keep that money and find ways to uh, keep it in legal, but strategic uh, processes. And one of those which you touched upon is depreciation. Um, for somebody that that has been in the industry for a little while now, like yourself and has had experience with depreciation, what has been the biggest benefit and what are some of the, the ways that you go about introducing this topic to a client um, who might know about it, might not, but uh, are definitely leaving something on the table with the depreciation? Yeah, so Albert Einstein said that compound interest is the eighth one of the world. I really think depreciation is the eighth one of the world because <laughs> It's, it's a phantom expense that you do not have to come out of pocket for, but it goes against your income that you're mm -hmm. able to take an expense for and ultimately pay less in taxes. And yeah. so to get, kind of give you an example is let's say I have, let's say the building that I purchased, I'm not going to get into all the calculations, but just know that you cannot depreciate land. You can only depreciate the amount of the building. But let's say I get about $10,000 of depreciation every single year. Well, my particular duplex, I might rent out for $12,000 a year. If I have $10,000 of depreciation, I made, I have $12,000 of cash flow coming from that duplex, but I get to turn around and tell the IRS I only made $2,000. Yeah. And that's, 
that's the power of depreciation. And to give you an idea of what the tax savings are on depreciation, you can multiply the amount of depreciation by your top marginal tax rate. And that's the amount that you're saving. So for me, I'm in a 24% federal income tax bracket with a 5% state tax rate. So I'm in a 29% tax bracket. If I have $10,000 of depreciation, I'm saving $2,900 a year in taxes because of depreciation. Wow. That's awesome, man. So what, what uh, state are you located in? Illinois. Illinois. Okay. And have, is that where you're, yeah. Is that where you're investing as well? Yeah, my my properties are in Illinois, unfortunately. Um, yeah. We do have really high property tax bills here. Yeah. I'm looking out of state to invest in some tax-free states, uh, places with mountains or beaches. Those are the two kind of primary yeah. locations I'm looking at for like short-term rentals yeah. specifically. And yeah. just just because there's better tax benefits in short-term rentals, they cash flow better. Um, I'd rather be like a host rather than a landlord also too. It yeah. kind of has this weird connotation <laughs> with being a landlord. Yeah. No, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because that's something that's, um, I think, not on top of everybody's mind, but honestly should be. I mean, short-term rentals are coming up more and more, but I don't think some people understand the incredible tax benefits that are like the Augusta rule and certain other rules where you can rent it out for a short amount of time and uh, if it's in that right uh, time period, you might not pay any taxes. So I'd love to hear your take on that and, and what you look for in a short-term rental and some of the things that you try to do to, to maximize your tax benefits. Yeah. So the first thing with short-term rentals is the location. So you're going to want to have a, a good location that's going to have high occupancy. There's going to be demand. There's there's fly-in markets, there's drive-in markets. You have to know your sort of clientele. So for example, the Smoky Mountains is a drive-in market. A lot of people will drive to that particular location. You have to also know the makeup of the building, especially when it comes to depreciation. So for example, condos, townhomes, those normally don't have any sort of land allocation to them, which means you'll get more in depreciation by buying something like that, as opposed to buying a property in, say, California, where there's a lot of land valuation out there. I've seen properties 30, 40 percent land valuation, as opposed to, say, 15 or 18 percent over here. And particularly in the Smoky Mountains, they're even lower. Sometimes there's six to eight percent land allocation, which means you get a ton of building basis for depreciation. Um, one thing that sticks out about short-term rentals, and you have to understand how those passive activity loss limitations work. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, passive activity losses can only be used to offset passive activity gains, which right. prevents your doctor, lawyer, w, uh, doctor or lawyer person from using their rental losses to offset their W-2 income. Yeah. Just think about it. Like if I'm a rich doctor and I make a million dollars, I can go dump my money in real estate accelerate the depreciation and use the loss to offset my income. Congress plugged that in 1986 when they overhauled the tax code. And that's when they separated it between non-passive and passive. It was until 1993 when they came out with real estate professional status, which basically said, if you want to take a passive loss against your non-passive income, you have to be a real estate professional, which it requires a ton of time. You have to spend at least 750 hours in real estate per year. So automatically, if you're you know, a nurse, doctor, lawyer, CPA, you're not going to qualify because there's not enough hours in the year for you to actually be able to be involved in the real estate. Now, the exception to that, however, 
is short-term rentals. So short-term rentals, the there's, I could pull up the subsection. I have it somewhere on my computer. There's a subsection in the internal revenue code where, where it says that if the average guest, uh, average user of the property stays at least seven days or less, stays seven days or less, it's not a rental activity, it's under section 469, which means then that short-term rental, you don't have to be a real estate professional in order to qualify to take the short-term rental loss against your non-passive income. Mm-hmm. You still have to do what's called material participation, which I'm not going to go into on this <laughs> call, but it creates these huge tax benefits for people who are you know, high earners. Uh, we're talking probably 24 or 32% federal tax brackets mm-hmm. who buy short-term rentals and manage the short-term rentals themselves. They do all the decorating and the staging. They, they screen the, the guests. They do all the management. They're able to use the short-term rental losses against their W-2 income. And on average, I would say a 32% tax bracket person buying a half million dollar cabin, they're saving anywhere between thirty dollars to $40,000 a year in taxes. Yeah. And it's really crazy because Another thing that's favorable about short-term rentals is that you can qualify for some pretty cool financing. So they offer what's called a 10% down secondary home loan. Mm -hmm. So you can buy a half million dollar cabin with 50 grand down. And if if you're getting $40,000 of tax savings on the back end, Mm -hmm. it's almost like the government's subsidizing 90%, 80% of your first short-term rental. It's awesome. Wow. No, it's so good, man. And you articulate it so well too, because- Oftentimes people hear conversations between guys like you and, and myself and they're like, okay, I have no idea what they're going to be talking about, but you, uh, I mean, you simplify it and I, I want to say dumb it down, which is amazing. And, and, uh, it's good. So I'm, I'm learning as, as you talk and it's, it's awesome, man. I'd, I'd love to, uh, hear your take on a, a take that I usually have. And that's, uh, the fact that every, I like to think that every CPA should own a business or have their own book of business. And uh, I honestly like to think that a lot of almost everybody should have their own business in general because of of the way the tax code incentivizes it. If not business, then real estate investments. But um, what have you learned in in your business ownership career? And uh, what are your recommendations for any CPA or non-CPA looking to get started? And needs a, a good incentive to get to get going i would this is across the board figure out what you're in the top 10 percent in the world in whether mm-hmm. that's whatever it is your craft is you're yeah. you like computers you like technology arts and crafts <laughs> hair cutting yep. being an accountant engineer lawyer figure out whatever it is that you're in the top 10 percentile at and do that master that craft because that's what's going to allow you to excel in your career, no matter what you end up doing, even if you decide not to open up your own shop, that's going to, what's going to help you excel being, being a jack of all trades or kind of being able to do everything works well sometimes, but you're never going to be that sort of expert that people can rely on as a subject matter expert. You're just kind of going to be a jack of all trades. I, so I encourage people to find their now passion doesn't always correlate to work. So some people find passion outside of work. I would highly recommend you to find a balance of both. So if you can find something that you can do for work, that's also your passion. That's great. If not use your work 
uh, use the time outside of work to work towards your passion. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I've also heard it stated, like, don't necessarily find your passion, bring your passion with you mm. as you do it. Because uh, Ryan, I think you, you can agree that accounting tax doesn't always, isn't always the most exciting uh, part of life. And, and uh, but the fact that somebody like you can be passionate about, about it and bring it with them is uh is what makes them different and and sets them apart and puts them in that 10 percent um section so man it's cool to see and dude for somebody that's that's so young and and not to to limit you at all it it is encouraging and um did you i'd like to think back because offline we were talking you started at 17 uh preparing taxes and getting into the accounting world was it from that point on where you kind of knew that you were going to be doing something on your own and uh did it come sooner or later than you would have expected so honestly at 17 i I really 17 18 when i first started i really didn't even know what i wanted to do Um, in high school high school senior year i actually almost failed on a math class (laughs) i had a d minus in my in my senior year calculus class and just didn't really know but see with accounting it's it is I was always good at math but not the stuff that they taught in school I was always good at mental math and percentages and figuring things out I fell in love with it because it kind of combined a little bit of both the uh, it combines knowing math knowing how to do something well but then also a little bit of legal aspect to tax of having to navigate the tax code and the mesh of those really really sat well with me. And it, I almost remember it as when I was first starting in school, I had, I was learning accounting, I was learning finance, but at the same time in other classes, I was learning how to use Excel. And it wasn't until I combined uh, Excel time value of money, projecting out retirement income, projecting out all these things that I was like, this really clicks for me. And this is something I want to spend a, a good chunk of my time doing. Wow. That's awesome. And that's kind of, I think that's, a lot of people find in accounting. I mean, there are obviously those people that stick with accounting. It's all the numbers crunching and they're, they're good at it. And I honor that. And I think people are meant to do that, but a lot of uh, accountants and, and people that I went to school with know and, and discuss with uh, in the industry kind of like that overlap of the, the, the logical um, law, the rules paired with the numbers and the calculations and being able to do it quickly and say, this is what, what it will provide for you. So it's cool to hear you articulate that, man. Um, and uh, I want to be, I want to honor your time here and, and don't want to take up too much of it. I know you got some stuff going on behind the scenes, but I would love to um, hear what you have planned for the future of, of your business. Um, I know you do more than just tax prep and, and accounting and bookkeeping. You do kind of have that um, servant heart and and you're looking to help people uh through consulting as well so um in however much time you desire what what's next for ryan backy and and his his firm and and his entrepreneurial um path yeah so we're working on something right now called i i dubbed it the financial freedom calculator so Mm -hmm. it's figuring out how much of your own money do you need to have invested within real estate in order to achieve a desired outcome so if say $50,000 of 
of my own money can buy me $200,000 worth of real estate and $200,000 of real estate at X percent return can provide me this much cash flow. It's, it's, I'm working on creating a financial freedom calculator so people can actually see something on paper or on Excel and start working towards that goal. And it's really helping people. What I, what I say is, and it's Stephen Covey's second habit of the seven habits of highly effective people begin with the end in mind. So if people can see just how their, their outcome of their life can be by investing, that's what I want to help people achieve. And this is not just real estate specific, but I also encourage people to invest in Roth IRA accounts, retirement yeah. accounts. And even for people that are young, just, just a small amount of money per month can add up so much, so much. Yeah. And that's sort of what my consulting and the future videos that I publish will be geared towards is helping everyone understand regardless of th their walk of life, that financial freedom is achievable mm -hmm. for everybody. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. And I, I look forward to, uh, sending that out. Do you have a, an expected release date or is it kind of in the works and we'll, we'll know more sooner? It's it, it, it's in, it's in the works. I have like some back of the napkin calcul calculations on Excel, but I'm really okay. trying to get it like modeled out and put yeah. in. So to just drop you something. So yep. if you're 25 years old, yep. you only need to invest $155 a month <laughs> at a 10% interest rate for 40 years in order to have a million dollars. So yep. 25 to 65, you only have to do 155 a month to be a millionaire at 65. Mm. Um, so now what's cool about numbers is numbers work no matter where you're at. You, right. you can be in California, Illinois, New York. Math, math makes sense all across the 50 United States, right? And say you wanted $3 million. So now you have to multiply the 155 by three. You need to be doing, what is that, four, four, $455 a month to be at yep. three, at 3 million. But what's interesting about time value money is the sooner you start, the more you're going to have. And mm -hmm. that same calculation, if you were to wait until you're 35, you actually have to invest three times the amount of money per month to achieve the same outcome. So wow. if I invest at 25 versus 35, that's a three X difference. So if I don't start until I'm 35 and I still want to be a millionaire when I'm at, when I'm age 65, I have to invest $450 a month at age 35 in order to achieve millionaire status when I could have just started when I was 25. Wow. Um, the bulk of the problem comes with how America has sort of codified the money talk. Mm -hmm. Money is not supposed to be talked about. It's kind of taboo. And there, especially with student loans and car debt, you see a lot of people go into massive amounts of debt and money is just never talked about. I really want it to be not as taboo as it is. I think if younger people can start realizing, hey, I really shouldn't buy a $50,000, $60,000 car when I just graduated college or, mm. you know, take out these amount of loans. I mean, I've heard of people going to colleges just because they like the houses that were in the yeah. area or <laughs> the, you know, go to out of state to go into debt to achieve yeah. the same degree. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, man. And that's, uh, I think that's something that, that more people need to talk about. And I don't think money needs to be this foreign object but we have kind of made it that and part of it is because uh it runs a lot of our lives and, and that's what i'm looking to do is kind of change the conversation uh ryan i know you have a bit of a faith background we didn't even get to dive into that but um maybe we can save that conversation for another day i i do like to close every episode um with the same question uh, it does have to deal with money and ryan it goes a little bit like this it's what is one truth about money 
that most people regard as myth? Uh, money changes people. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it doesn't. Money doesn't wow. change people. It just amplifies what's already there. Wow. So if you are a giver and kind at heart, yep. when, you, when you don't really have too much money, you're going to be even more fruitful and more giving when you do come across money. Mm. If, you're, um, if you're a Scrooge and you, you're not a giver and that you're going to be the same way when you, when you amplify it, when money yep. gets amplified. If you're, if, you're, if you're rude, if you're mean, more money is just going to make, it's just going to amplify what's already there. It's not going to change the type of person. Wow. That's incredible, man. And, and I love how quickly you were able to, to articulate and answer. Sure. That, man. And um, you are articulative. And, and that's uh, something that I appreciate about you. Um, I'm so glad I got you on the show. Um, if people want to follow you, find you, reach out to you for all their real estate tax needs, where can they do so? Yeah, so we're on Instagram and Twitter at Learn Like a CPA. That's mm -hmm. at Learn Like a CPA. Oh, I'm also on TikTok now. I just I just published my second TikTok. Okay. So all go. all three platforms at Learn Like a CPA. Uh, we we have a Facebook group called Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. There's about okay. two thousand members in there now, and that's where you can find and, and get in touch. Wow, awesome, awesome, Ryan. Well, thank you for your time, man. I'll I'll keep you posted on when we can release this, but I know we'll be in touch sooner rather than thank later. You. So thank you so much. You, Awesome. Awesome. Awesome, man. Like I said, great guy. Ryan is. And uh, for all you listeners out there that got as much value as I know you did from that episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could go onto all of our platforms and leave a five star rating and review. You know, we're on YouTube. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We are wherever you listen to podcasts. And to help grow our listenership, we need people like you, faithful listeners, to help us out and uh, share your thoughts. So I really appreciate any kind words that you uh, provide. Should you provide the opposite, I do appreciate negative feedback, but uh, would love for that to be more of a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Whatever it is that you feel like you can give to this show, feel free to give it now. And uh, in the meantime, keep the faith, keep pushing forward, and we'll talk to you soon.